21CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. Hello, everybody. Welcome to my Run Your Life podcast series. Uh, I'm very happy today because this is one of my face-to-face live interviews that I love doing. Um, and I'm happy to actually have my colleague and friend, uh, John Davidson, on the show. Uh, John is the primary years program coordinator at the Cow School, which is located in Saudi Arabia. I've just started up at the school. We're about six weeks into the school year or five weeks, John. Yeah, feels like a bit more, but yeah, I think yeah. that's all that we've yeah. that's all that's been. So um, I've just, you know, I'm working with John. We're sharing an office. So we're really spending a lot of time just talking about uh, teaching practice and talking about our program here and bouncing ideas off one another. And it's been a very valuable start to the school year for me. So um, I wanted to have John on the show. John is uh, brings a lot of experience um, to his role here at, at Coast. Um, he has a lot of background in educational leadership, which we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're going to talk about his work with um, being a curriculum coordinator. Um, and again, even though a lot of the audience, John, is physical education teachers and researchers, um, I believe that there's great value in having discussions about good teaching practice in general and, and mm-hmm. what it takes to maintain your levels of motivation for the for the work that we do in education, I mm-hmm. think, is, is very important. So, John, tell the people anything you want about yourself, you know, from uh, university to mm-hmm. present date. Give okay. us a little cross-section snippet into John Davidson's life. All right. That's a bit scary thinking how much uh, time I spent in teaching. It must be about 25, 26 years uh, so I live from the UK, as you can probably tell by the accent, and uh, did my uh, degree, first degree in, in Bristol, then I did my postgraduate certificate in education in Bristol, and my first teaching in Bristol, which was brilliant. You know, 36 kids in a class, and I was teaching them everything, so I was a PE teacher then. Yeah. I was also a music teacher, so there's probably a whole generation of children who've been scarred for life <laughs> by having me as a music teacher. Uh, and everything was piled into one, and I loved it. You know, people say how um, well I can't imagine teaching thirty-six children. Um, it was a joy, and I really, uh, I had a great time there. How long did you do that? That was four years in the UK, uh, plus you know another couple of years training. So it was it was a good grounding. But England being England, I, th- I saw an advert one day sitting in a rainy staff room and flicked open the Times Ed, and there was teaching the Caribbean. I thought, wow. That appeals to me. Yeah. So I'm in my twenties, I thought, why not? So I went off to the Caribbean and I sought for three years in the Dominican Republic. Where, um, by the way, that we are, uh, we have a common connection in Mr. Derek Pinchback. That's right. Who yes. is the current uh, deputy director, I think, uh, at the uh, International School of Singapore. So, Derek, if you're listening, hello from John and I. But yeah. anyways, they were good days. Yeah, <laughs> very different world, I think. But yeah, it was great fun. Uh, then I went back to the UK and did my master's degree in Wales, at the University of Wales at Cardiff. Then um, went off to. Uh, to Switzerland, and we uh, happened to end up in a school that was pretty small. It was in a little shrush by the uh, 
of the Xerxes, and there's a guy called um, Mr. Paul Liebrich III, who was one of the founders of the PYP, and he was my director there. Um, and at that time, the the um, the curriculum that he had formed with his colleagues was just taken on by the IB. So the International Schools Curriculum Programme was taken on by the IB, and it was a cause of great celebration for Paul. You know, he was quite uh, quite elated at the time. And at that time, I had no idea what was the fuss. You know, what mm. is this? And it just transformed the rest of my career since. So I've never taught in a school that is not an IB school. When I choose to to move, I make a list of my ten priorities, and top of the list is an IB school. Uh, second is a non-profit IB school. So mm. it's it's been a, an amazing way to move forward. Was that time with Paul back then? So from Switzerland to. Switzerland, I went to Portugal. Um, so I spent St. Dominic's. St. Dominic's, yeah. yeah. So I was deputy head there. Um, then I went to Monaco, had some time in Monaco. Uh, then I went to Norway, had some time in Norway. You were five, six years in Norway? I was six years in Norway. When, when you say I spent six years in Norway, it seems like an awful long time. Um, it was a very lovely school. It was tiny. Um, but it was a great community spirit. We had a lovely little building there, and we we were a really solid team of teachers. Yeah, um, fond memories of Norway and very Norwegian much, life. And yeah, the, the Norwegians were a very sound uh, bunch of people. Yeah. Very very down to earth. Great sense of humour, um, and I really enjoyed my time there, where I was the I was the principal. I was the PYP coordinator. I taught a little bit in primary school, and I taught a little bit in middle school, which was again a really interesting time for me because suddenly I had to get my head around the MYP. Right. Um, so I spent maybe five years teaching the MYP, uh, and I had a good a good view of that, and realised that there were so many things that we had in common that it was a it should be a smooth transition from one program to another. Um, that was before the, the new chapter, and I think since the new chapter, it's been a lot more smooth, and there are more commonalities, and all those mm-hmm. things have been drawn out. So, I do feel like you know, the IB education is what I want my kids to go through. Yeah, myself as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my boys, it's, they've only been in IB schools. Yeah. Um, so, from Norway to? Um, from Norway, I went to Laos. So we had a, a another four years in Laos, which was a tremendous time. And you were head of elementary. I was there. a principal in in that school there, and that was the first time I had not been in the classroom. So I was determined not to forget what it's like to be in the classroom yeah. and to remember that there are an awful lot of pressures. So whilst the uh, it's all very well saying, well, let's think about our approaches to teaching and learning. Let's think about this that, and the other. Then you've got you've got deadlines and you've got your reports to run and you've got the kid that you're really worried about in your class, you've yeah. got this, that and the other. So it's important not to forget that there are it's, teaching is a really tough job. Absolutely, and that's what Dylan William uh, said when he was at our school. He actually said uh, teaching is an impossible job, mm-hmm. which kind of, uh, and he said, yes, that's what I said, teaching is an impossible job. Mm-hmm. So more or less don't bullshit me and think that you know you can get the job done it's very very difficult Mm -hmm. um but he had that message uh, recognizing just as you mentioned how difficult teaching is really Mm -hmm. and i think in taking your experience forward what are the big lessons that you've learned that can um alleviate 
possibly some of that pressure on teachers? Um, don't be too hard on yourself. I think at the end of the day, um, a good teacher will constantly, constantly reflect on their teaching and they'll never be satisfied with the way something has, has run in the past. So don't forget that you are inhuman and you won't do it perfectly and there's never a perfect unit, there's never a perfect lesson. Yeah. So just be aware that you're, you are only human but so long as you never lose sight of the fact that you want to improve, then go for it. Yeah. And just enjoy the experience. Yeah. There's nothing more fun than being with a bunch of kids. Yeah. And actually seeing them, the little lights go on and suddenly you think, oh, yeah, I understand that now. Or, you know, just clowning about with the kids and, and forming that relationship, I think, with the kids is, is awesome. Yeah. There's not many jobs where you actually have the chance to to form relationships and form friendships even with, the, with your staff. So you'd be friends with the kids, but you are friendly with the kids. Yeah. I think that as single subject teachers, so again, there's a lot of PE teachers listening to this and I... In my own experience, being a PE teacher for many years, uh, it, it's a beautiful position because, especially when you're at the, at a school for a number of years, you are among a handful of other single subject teachers that literally knows every single student in the school. Yeah, yeah. And I love that. Yeah. You know, I love being able to walk down any hallway of the school and hear, "Oh, Mr. Andy, Mr. Andy," and and have these conversations with any student in any hallway of the school because you know them. And yeah. music teachers experience that. Mm -hmm. Art teachers experience that. Whereas classroom teachers don't get that same experience. They mm -hmm. just know their own students or a few from other classes in the same grade level. So I think um, single-subject teachers are in a very unique position to have a, a large influence on the general student body in, in an yeah. elementary school. Yeah, I mean, I was sitting in the car with uh, one of our PE teachers and he was chatting with my daughter. I said, whose class are you in now? And she told him, he said, who's your friends? And she said, oh, so, 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 and so, so, so. And he knew every one of them. Yeah. And he teaches 250, 260 kids. And yeah. yet he knew these, these guys. And I thought, wow, that's pretty impressive. That's, that's good. Yeah, absolutely, right? And when, you know, my daughter comes home and says, what was your best party today? She oh, PE, I loved it. And she, you know, she's not an athlete, but she just adores the, the, the warmth, I think, that she experiences in, in Mr. Kelly's class. Yeah. Good for you. Thanks, yeah. Bill. Yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoy going and, and seeing the single-subject teachers in action, and especially mm -hmm. ones, like I said, that have been at the school for a while, because you can see the rapport that it has been developed with, with the kids, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so... In, I guess, okay, so from Laos you came here. So yeah. talk about yeah. your, your present position. Like, well, I came here, um, not in my present position, I didn't come as the PYP coordinator, but there was this this um, opportunity that I'd heard about. And my director in Laos knew the principal here, and there seemed like too good a chance to miss. There was this job going that was called pedagogical coordinator, and... No one gets this chance. <laughs> no one gets the chance to sit down and do what's really, really engaging about the job. And what's engaging about a principal's job is not doing the, the facilities. It's not doing the buses. It's not doing the discipline stuff. That is not interesting. What is interesting is sitting with a teacher and talking about teaching. Mm -hmm. And this whole job was to be with teachers saying, okay, let's have a look at practice. What can we do? Let's have a look at how to enrich the environment, how to enrich the experience of the students. Um, so I thought, well, yeah, let's go for it. 
And so I spent a really nice year last year working with the grade five teachers and their single subject teachers in performing and visual arts, um, just looking at you know how to make things hum. Mm-hmm. And it was it was great, really good experience. And now that's my current role. Yes. And, and I every day I come to school, I'm like this has to be one of the greatest jobs in the history of education. Yeah, <laughs> because it's, it's unheard of mm-hmm. right having this position. So I've learned so much from coming here and one of the the big things for me you know my consulting background and and it's not consulting and that was made very clear to me mm-hmm. that it's not fixing problems it's engaging yeah. in in discussion and having dialogue that is all about good teaching practice mm-hmm. and that really ends up bringing out the best in not only the pedagogical coordinator but mm-hmm. also the teacher yeah it goes both ways yeah yeah. You know, so it's it's such a great position and such an important position mm-hmm. uh, because you have that, I guess you're the, besides the teacher, you have the closest line of influence to students, mm-hmm. you know, as, yeah. as a yeah. coordinator. Yeah, I think, you know, if you look at the factors that will enrich the school, it's talking about teaching. So it's not talking about the photocopier. It's not talking about what unit the weekend. It's it's actually having a, a serious conversation about teaching. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. This is a unique, a unique opportunity. And I think we before this this broadcast we were talking about my previous experiences of um, teacher appraisal or teacher growth and various models that we've had to try and make sure that teachers are uh, engaged in their own learning and. Before I was saying, there's some pretty, um, pretty one-way conversation I've had with with teachers, and it was it was good intentions. You know, we had rubrics and we had time to reflect and we had conversations, and yet it was all very much about well, what's your smart goal for this year? Um, and I have literally sat in an office with a teacher and go, and she says, I don't know. You tell me. You tell me what my smart goal should be for this year. And before I'd gone through this training, I was in this position. I thought, well, I should, I should be telling her. You know, I should be telling her how to grow. And so I, I was making some suggestions based on my observations. And I'm sure they were fairly sound recommendations, but there was no involvement. There was no buy-in by that teacher. It was a case of, if you tell me what I need to do, I'll do it. Yeah. I'll tick that box, but don't ask me to. Edit. And that is the predominant model of uh, appraisal mm-hmm. and, and supporting teachers in the classroom, is yeah. exactly as you yeah. described. Mm-hmm. So, for teachers listening to this who have those walkthrough visits by administrators, mm-hmm. who then give them feedback afterwards saying, okay, you did this, the old check the box, tell them a couple positive things, tell them things that you need to improve upon mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, and get their opinion about how they think the lesson went. Mm-hmm. For teachers that are in those type of appraisal systems still, there'll be a number of teachers that are listening to this that still go through that. Mm-hmm. What can they do to kind of take more initiative to become I guess, better practitioners. What's your advice to just, you know, maximize their, uh, what can they do to maximize their, their impact? How can they take initiative to do that? Well, I'll say, um, it's, it, if you're a, if you are a true learner and re- replicate what you see in a good classroom in your own experience. So have some external references. Don't just look internally and think, well, how do I think I might do better? Let's have a look around. So read. Um, there's some amazing literature out there. 
there are some amazing teachers out there. Have some serious conversations, go into their classrooms, ask them to come to your classroom and just learn from your colleagues and learn from the, the, the huge terms of great stuff that's out there that will really provoke your thinking. Um, so I think earlier on we were talking about some of the some of the reading that we're encouraged to do at school. Yeah. Um, so it's not just the, the, the stuff that you're made to read. It's just be curious. I think that's the, the biggest thing a teacher can be is curious. And to actually feel like this is a, an amazing profession to be in. There's nothing like it. And so engage with that profession. Um, so you know, read everything that comes your way. Sort of read blogs, read read serious books, and then read fun books as well. And have a healthy. What I tell people is to, especially nowadays with with you know social media, Twitter having such a powerful influence on on kind of teacher networks, and there's so much on Twitter, but it's not vetted. There's nobody Mm -hmm. sitting behind. There's not a committee that is vetting saying, Oh, what that teacher is actually putting on Twitter is good Mm -hmm. teaching practice. Yeah. So you can fall into the trap of thinking that you're, you're seeing good things on Twitter. Mm -hmm. But when you get below the surface, you realize that there's lots of holes in it and lots of flaws. Mm -hmm. So I say to remind teachers to, that Twitter can be an extremely powerful tool for professional development, but we must maintain healthy a healthy skepticism mm-hmm. for everything that we see. Mm-hmm. And that's in a positive way, just mm-hmm. to, to, to look at it with a critical eye and, and then evaluate whether or not it truly fits your own needs. Yeah. Um, one of the things, I just to add to what you were saying about getting to other classrooms is, Oftentimes, music teachers or PE teachers or arts teachers or even classroom teachers get caught up in this thinking that, um, for example, a grade four teacher must visit another grade four classroom to to be able to draw out uh, great things happening that can be applied to their own classroom. So it's uh, a parallel observation, right? Mm-hmm. But there is massive value in a PE teacher going to a grade five classroom and just watching. And you're just looking for good teaching practice. You're looking at the space. You're looking at the environment. You're looking at the interactions. Mm -hmm. So I encourage teachers, get outside of your subject area and and go elsewhere to to kind of observe. What are your thoughts Mm -hmm. on that? Yeah, I mean, one of the the most uh, most significant... Uh, classroom visits I did with the grade 5 teachers last year was to walk into a diploma level math class and I think many primary school teachers um, have a mixed sort of feeling first of all they feel like well they don't share our experience um, and they are a different different killer fish we're we're talking about two different things and if only they understood what was happening in 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 an elementary classroom Uh, and oh well they don't they don't do displays, you know, the walls are blank. So how can they engage the students in thinking? Um, we went into a diploma class and the walls were blank, except for a few very interesting quotes up on the wall. And the teacher was mesmerising. You know, he had the children sit. He rearranged the, the seating arrangements. Every now and again, you would sit them in different patterns and they would reflect a mathematical pattern. And the kids had to work out why he'd sat them like that. And the, the quotes were, you know, they were A4, pretty lost on a huge wall, but they were provoking. And we realised, 
Actually, it's not that different. What he's doing is provocations. Absolutely. And, and he's engaging the students in deep thinking. Mm. Uh, one of the books I've read recently was, it was opened up Hattie again. He was saying that there was in a survey of mathematical tests, only 30% of these tests had anything to do with deep thinking. Everything else was very superficial. Yeah. And I think, wow, this, this teacher was superb. I want my kid to go into that class and yeah. be provoked. And actually have to not just regurgitate stuff, but think about pattern, think about math. And this guy was doing it. And we all came out of there and went, wow, that's a teacher. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and that's because of the four. Why don't you tell everybody um, listening uh, about the four-minute walkthroughs that mm-hmm. are part of our, our professional practice here at Coast? Yeah, I mean, the... the the, the good thing about Kaust is that the way that they, they practice what they preach, um, they say, you know, if you are going to be a, a growth mindset, if you're going to have a growth mindset, let's get out there and let's get engaged with our craft, with our profession. And one of the requirements is to take four-minute walkthroughs as a group, and they can be uh, with, your, with your pod, with your grade level, with other teachers, and they can be at any level in the school. So they can be in the kindergarten, they can be in the elementary, they can be in the NYP and the DP, um, but they are they are there to engage you in thinking, and it's, it is an expectation. It's it's not just oh that would be nice if you could. You are required to do this. And I think so. Let me time out there mm-hmm. and tell me about how the groups are formed. So the four minute walkthrough, as you said, you have to go through with a group of people. So mm-hmm. let's let's back up to that that idea. How do you form your group? Is it is it very open ended? Yeah. Can you take initiative on your own? For sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is very, very open-ended. You can just say to, you know, if you're a fifth-grade teacher, you can say to a fourth-grade teacher or a third-grade teacher, hey, why don't, we, why don't we pop up to the how they how they're teaching um, uh, individuals and society in the middle years program. Let's see what our students are going to look like in a couple of years' time, and what their expectations of the learning that goes on in an MIP class. And again, that was another great walkthrough. We walked into a. An individuals and society, which is, is kind of a humanities, humanities type, yeah. uh, class in the MIP, which is just a grade six. So I was walking in with a bunch of grade five teachers, and they knew most of the students in there. Oh, yeah, I know. And they're saying, Yeah, you know what? He came into my class, he could hardly speak a word of English, and look at him now. And then we started to look at their walls, and, and we thought, Well, there are so many commonalities between the PYP and the NYP, and they are totally conceptually based. I mean, she was teaching a concept based classroom, mm-hmm. and we thought, You know, this is good, this feels perfect yeah. because we are preparing students for, for what to come. And what the NYP teachers probably need to do is just come down and see how we teach as well. Yeah, and that idea of the four-minute walkthrough is that no, it's not about giving feedback to the teacher. No. You are stealing ideas. Yeah, you are yeah. stealing just anything that resonates with you to pull back. Yeah, and it's not even be a well-formed idea. You can just come back with an "I wonder," and yeah. quite often you do come back with an "I wonder." And There's a little bit of background noise here. <laughs> we're we're recording live in John's office, and we're looking out the window, and we hear some kids screaming, but. Considering our kids are probably on the prowl, I, I think it was our kids. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was worried about. But I think all is okay. Oh, yes, yeah, I think so. Um, so um, moving moving forward, part of my podcast and and what I do is I will ask my guests whatever their industry is. I've had authors, I've had people in business, people 
um, like professional athletes, but I always ask my guests to look outside their own industry um, and to, or I guess I, I ask them, what inspires them outside of their industry that they can pull back to what they do and the work that they do? So if you had to look outside of education, what are some, some things that really inspire you or, or allow you to draw big ideas from? Hmm. I think, I mean, I've, I've done a few jobs in my time, especially when I was trying to finance my way through my master's degree. I was, I was working in a, a call center. And so this was for, for British Telecom and you know, it's the 100 service. So you would dance the phone and say, 100 service, can I help you? <laughs> and, was, and they said, always apologize. No matter what they say, apologize. So you know, the first phrase that came out, oh, I'm sorry about that. And they were saying, you know what? If you can find a way of improving our systems here, you'll get a pen. A pen. A pen. And you think, really? Is that the way you want to, to achieve growth? <laughs> is to say you're going to get a pen at the end of this um, and I think that, that does just say heaps about the way that people perceive that motivation might be um, sticking carrot yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. There's, there's no intrinsic motiv- motivation there yeah. and when I think of, of teacher development for sure it's got to come from within because you're doing a great job and this is a really amazing opportunity to be part of a kid's life, one of the most important factors in a kid's life is a teacher. And don't take it for granted. Always remember that you've got a huge responsibility for those kids. I think that's uh, relates to Daniel Pink's work, who wrote a book called Drive. Uh, that, what is it? The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. And he his work is based on a lot of research on um, reward systems and uh, intrinsic versus extrinsic kind of that carrot and stick mentality and the findings that him and his team came up with is that when you take the issue of money off the table mm-hmm. so money is not an issue that you're putting teachers in, or whoever whatever business it is, business it is uh, you're putting them in a position to begin to think about producing the best work possible but then there are other factors that come into play, such as purpose, mm-hmm. autonomy, and uh, relatedness or, or mastery. Mm-hmm. So that idea of that sense of autonomy with teachers, uh, giving teachers that sense of purpose. So a lot of the work that I do, even when I was presenting to only physical education teachers, I, I had to... I, I took every opportunity possible to ensure that teachers are able to define what their true purpose is, mm-hmm. you know. Um, mm-hmm. But that idea of uh, teacher autonomy. So in your role in educational leadership, moving into your co- uh, curriculum coordinating role, teacher autonomy, what is your definition of teacher autonomy and how can we support teachers to be more autonomous? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, say how you don't, and that is to walk in as an administrator with a clipboard. Yeah, and a and a tick, yeah. uh, and that is not the way to support autonomy. The, the way to support autonomy is is exactly how you support autonomy in a classroom, is to create an environment where it isn't just possible to inquire. It's the only feasible route is to inquire. So to provide teachers with the opportunity, with time, with uh, with resources so it's not just going on odd PD courses, but it's making those P- PD courses 
totally relevant to something that is driving the teacher. So again, in our school, it's not um, a smallest board of PD. Well, my friends are going to Barcelona this year. It's what is your inquiry, first of all. Let's, let's nail that inquiry down. And then well, what we need to, to, to uh, water that inquiry. How can we nurture that inquiry? And it might be a PD course. Yeah. It might be spending some quality time with another teacher. Yeah. But if you want to teachers become autonomous, autonomous learners, create the environment. Yeah, and this is a good way, a good time to segue into. We have a very unique um, professional growth development plan here, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, which is very different than uh, any. I guess I've seen snippets of it in other schools, but in every school, it's all about teacher setting goals. Mm-hmm. And usually, I'm going to guess that at least seventy-seven percent of the time. That's just a number I pulled out of my head. That those goals have to be related to a weakness, mm-hmm. a weak area of your teaching. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of strength-based research shows that that type of goal setting makes teachers feel, and students, when we say students, you have to work on this goal, that they are beginning at a deficit. Mm-hmm. So they're already feeling that they're not in a good place and that they they are not worthy, so to speak. You know, so... Um, that kind of idea of um, strength-based um, development, professional development, is huge, I think. Mm. So why don't you take the listeners through, just in a nutshell, how we uh, address professional learning here? Yeah, I mean, it is, uh, we've, we've made a very conscious effort to draw away from that term goal so we have said, what is your inquiry for this year? Excellent. And so it can be something you think, well, you know, I'm not too good at questioning and maybe I should not. Or it can be equally that, you know, I really feel like I'm getting inquiry down and I need to just dig a bit deeper in. I'm good at, I'm good at creating an inquiry classroom. How do I get even better? Yeah. How do I share that knowledge with other people? So it is not the deficit. It's yeah. the It's the the thoughtful um, metacognition about what you're doing in the classroom and how that can how we how you can drive your own growth from there, which again, like you say, is pretty pretty rare around here. Yeah. So we do have uh, we have a, uh, a set of questions where we we reflect on our teaching practices, and so that it's an online resource where we where we have a rubric and we can place ourselves within several categories. And then we can discuss that with our uh, pedagogical coordinator. So we sit down and say, well, this is what I've, I came out with. So already it's beginning to, to look at data. And it can be a strength. It can be something you need to work on. It can be something that just interests you. Yes. Uh, wow, that's that's awesome. Because it is... It's, it is empowering. It's so empowering. Yeah. 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 So you discuss with your, your pedagogical coordinator where you think your inquiry will, will be that year. And you know what? It's okay if it changes. Halfway through the year, you think, well, uh, you know, that wasn't what I thought. I thought it was all about inquiry, but actually it's about teacher talk time. Yeah. And so it's changed. Yeah. And that's fine. That's change. the true nature of inquiry. Exactly, right? yeah. Yeah, well, I'm going to have a clear picture at the beginning, or you may not have a clear picture at the beginning of where it's going to end up. Because if you really do dig deep and really do think about it, Nine times out of ten, it might just morph into something else because you're realizing that the questions you were asking yourself at the beginning 
and not the questions at the end. Yeah. And I, I like the way that it can it can adapt to the way you're learning. Yeah, and that I think uh, sets a different tone in the sense that it takes that pressure off, external pressure and internal pressure, mm-hmm. to feel as though oh, I've set a goal. If I don't meet this goal at the end, then you know I I have failed. Or what happens sometimes is that the teachers who set goals don't even think about it all year, and then mm-hmm. it's April, and then no. they have to start thinking yeah. about it, <laughs> and they fictitiously make up stuff yeah. to be able to 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 meet that goal and mm-hmm. to be able to check those boxes, and and that is not setting up an authentic, warm, nurturing environment to professionally grow. Yeah. So again, there'll be many teachers listening to this that are in a system that requires them to set goals. And they are being, um, I guess, assessed by administration on whether or not they meet these goals. Mm -hmm. But it's still very possible informally to set your own professional inquiries and just be curious about your own teaching. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that's just a, a reminder that even though you are mandated by a certain system, there's still room to take initiative to professionally grow Mm-hmm. Under your own terms, terms yeah. and conditions. Yeah, and another good aspect of the of the system we have here is the requirement to journal. Yeah. Uh, so you, you have a journal, and you share that journal with colleagues. And um, I think that it's a surprise to many people that the act of journaling actually creates new thinking. Absolutely. Um, so I think we both had access to another colleague's but journal where she was saying, you know what, I didn't, want, I didn't know what to write at the beginning of this, but yeah. now things are forming. Yeah, and, and that idea of professional journaling, again, coming here, I've always journaled in the past, and I, I think people often, uh, they journal in different ways, but that idea that it's it's not about in today's class uh, Billy did this and then I did this and then we we went and we had like you know 15 or 20 minutes of uh, I went off on a tangent and then we ended up doing this where you're just factually recounting your day mm-hmm. it's not about that no. it's, it's very very different mm-hmm. it's specifically about your inquiry mm-hmm. and what you're learning from the data that's being collected based yeah. on your inquiry. Yeah. So can you just create in your head right now, just make up what a professional inquiry might be and some examples of data for those mm-hmm. teachers that are interested in creating their, their own professional inquiries, what might it look like? Well, I think um, my inquiry last year, this is probably not totally applicable to, to a teacher, but it was ways in which that, I can uh, use cognitive coaching to stimulate thinking mm-hmm. and to uh, deepen people's understanding. And I took two case studies, if you like. One was, one was a teacher that um, required a lot more introspection and serious self-evaluation. The other teacher was just awesome. Yeah. And I thought, well, how can I help the teachers are awesome to become even more awesome. Mm-hmm. And that was my inquiry, is that, is that it, it should be, and it was, I think, possible, to by sitting down having some, uh, you know, 45-minute conversations with a teacher where you provoke their thinking to help them grow. And with the other teacher, you know, maybe that, it, I, I believe that that's useful as well. That yeah. you, you never give up on a teacher. You always 
assume there's positive intent. These yeah. people are hugely engaged with their profession. They want to grow, and if, if we're given enough support, they will grow. Yeah. yeah. So the ability, your inquiry was the maybe. I'm assuming something that's not true, but the ability to shift gears within your cognitive coaching role, mm. yeah. right? Yeah. To bring out the best in whatever teacher you're working with, yeah. right? So as soon as and you seeing that impact, yeah. As soon as you stop thinking that I need to be even more insightful than a wonderful teacher, it's, it's very liberating, and you and you're not in that position of having to know plus model of whatever any teacher is like. Yeah. So how do I help them grow? And it is it is having a cognitive coaching con- uh, conversation with them because you don't know where it's going. Yeah. But through structures, you can actually stimulate their thinking and they're saying, yeah, you know what? I, I, I was always assuming it was this and that wasn't the correct assumption. Maybe I should explore this. Yeah. And it was, it was great to see. Yeah. And it's good to be able to go through that process yourself. So the coaches coach each other and they, they help each other grow too. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a very powerful model to have. Yeah. yeah. And again, like the professional inquiry, as you outline, can be a strength, an interest, or a weakness. Mm-hmm. And I think any inquiry, any teacher in any school, if there's a glaringly obvious issue with teaching, mm-hmm. then the inquiry must be that deficiency in yeah. your teaching. But if everything is working, mm-hmm. then the door is open. Yeah. And I think returning back to Daniel's Pink work, Daniel Pink's work about autonomy, putting teachers in an autonomous position to be their best, that is a perfect example. Many educational leaders would be very uncomfortable with this because they have led the way they were led, mm-hmm. or they teach as they were taught. Yeah which is very traditional, mm-hmm. right? Which means it's all weakness-based. Yeah. So I think that puts many educators uh, or many leaders uh, in an uncomfortable position mm-hmm. because there's an element of trust there mm-hmm. that you, you have to just trust that, you know, people are going to get on with their learning yeah. professionally. Yeah, and I think there's um, another facet to that in that some leaders feel like it's a, it's a control thing and they feel like they have to be in control and they have to be uh, rigid in their requirements and to release control is both scary and liberating so that applies to teachers too oh, for sure. in the classroom yeah. with with not being able to give up control mm-hmm. and i think we've all we've all been there yeah. in our teaching careers is that when Now, with inquiry, it becomes a thing that it's not just blanket, free reign, do whatever you want, which is a misconception of inquiry. But that idea of um, when you're handing control over, it's a whole different ballgame, right? Mm -hmm. But whether you're a a leader in education or, or a teacher, what do you have to say to the leaders or teachers that are listening to this, that in their heart... The ones listening who who have difficulty in giving up control, what is your advice to them? Because I see you in your leadership position as being very good at handing it over. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I noticed when I first came here with you, that you're very good at just letting people get on with things. 
So what is your advice to those leaders or teachers listening that really struggle with control? Mm. There was a, a really good little icon once. It was a, an eye, and it said, a, you know, a truly good teacher sees his teaching, her teaching, through the eyes of a student. What is what is it like to be a student in your class? And the flip side of that is that the students see themselves as their own teacher. And I think, and that's what Hattie says is our goal, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, our goal to yes. get the students to see themselves as teachers. Yeah. So replace student with learner. Yeah. Replace learner with the teachers that are your colleagues, and you've got a model for I think a really powerful way forward. Yeah. And if they see themselves as their their own agency. They've got this agency. They've got the autonomy, and that is a directed autonomy. Yeah. That they are they are supported in in driving themselves forward. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and I think that idea with teachers and what I've told teachers that I've worked with in the past is that idea of a lot of teachers feel this pressure and they they have difficulty or they're reluctant to give up control because there's so many outcomes that they have to get Mm -hmm. the students to meet Mm -hmm. and it's all outcomes and I have to do this and there's so much content and you, you see it in teachers immediately you see mm-hmm. you see that they're so worried mm-hmm. about being able to uh, ensure that they are doing everything possible to cover content mm-hmm. but it's that idea of what I tell teachers is do not look at student learning outcomes as outcomes but more guideposts to mm-hmm. learning along this journey mm-hmm. because really you're not going to be able to no matter what your scope and sequence is you are not going to be able to assess every outcome in a scope and sequence. Mm -hmm. So if you look more at outcomes as guideposts along this journey of learning, just like shifting gears from professional or from goal, uh, teacher goal setting to inquiry, Mm -hmm. it relieves this pressure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like we are here to guide students. These are the pivot points or kind of the, the outcomes that we are we are working to um, help our students uh, navigate through. Mm-hmm. When we look at it that way, I think it alleviates pressure. Yeah, yeah. Just bring the student home. And I think we we were sitting in a, a meeting the other day looking at data, and there was a little bit of unease amongst the petcos, wasn't there? Because yeah. there was there was some pretty uh, <laughs> data driven <laughs> terminology going on there. Yeah. And yet, when we actually looked at the data from a slightly different perspective, you could see the growth. Yeah, and that was so much more liberating. So instead of expectations, it became this kid went from this level in reading to this level in reading. Now it still might not be expectation for grade five, but my goodness, look at the growth they made in that year. Yeah, it was phenomenal. And that's what I want to return to right now. So what Hattie says is, uh, every student deserves the right to to grow. To to we should support. Uh, or encourage one year of growth or something mm. like that, right? Right. No matter where they're at, okay. yeah. right? Yeah. So I'm going to return specifically to PE now. So for PE teachers that have all these outcomes to meet, um, can you explain that one year of growth kind of um, thinking with, with Hattie's work and, and what he kind of stresses with teachers? I think that if, a, if you've got a well-thought-out 
curriculum documentation, it, it doesn't have those uh, by year five, they will know this, 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 and this. Yeah. It will have a, a, a continuum of growth. Yes. So, so long as you have a, a, a very mindful uh, staff, then I think that you're the best, the best advice you can give a teacher is be the, be your best friend with the curriculum, know it inside out. Yeah. So that if, if you know that in some areas the, the student is here, but in other areas they might be here, it's not that they are failing, it's just have a very clear idea of where they are, where you Absolutely. need to go next. Yeah. That's, that's, you can't, you can't then switch mindsets as into, oh, they haven't reached the standards for this particular grade. Exactly, right? More continuum-based mentality. So, for example, a PE teacher who teaches grade four, um, they may have a student that's at a grade one level in terms of gross motor skills. So if you can move that grade four student who's at a grade one level Mm -hmm. in regards to their gross gross motor skills, if you can move them to a grade two level, they're still not at a grade four level. Mm -hmm. But that's a huge win. Yeah. Yeah, right? and you don't beat yourself up about it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that I came across that work. Um, I, a friend of mine, Dean Dudley, um, Dr. Dean Dudley from the University of Macquarie, is is um, good friends with Hattie. Yeah. And Dean was the first one that introduced me to that idea of a year's growth. Right, right? Yeah, yeah. And it, it just opened my eyes. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, that's so true. Like, that's what we, we should be aiming to do. Yeah. You know, so in the continuum, wherever they fall, you propel them a year. Yeah. Anything more than that is just a bonus. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, so this is a good time to segue into the Margaret Heffernan clip. So to give people some background, um, TED Radio Hour, uh, I received permission from TED Radio Hour to use audio clips so I always give a shout out to Ted Radio Hour, um, but the audio clips that I that I pick, um, I have a guest listen to the audio clip and then talk about what resonates. So this is Margaret Heffernan. She's a well known consultant from the UK. Um, she's actually a keynote speaker at the IB conference in Barcelona mm-hmm. next month. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's fascinating. Her work is amazing. This clip is all about the meaning of work, and I've had several guests listen to this clip. Um, I want you to, as you listen to this clip, you heard it in the pre-show, but as you listen to it, I want you to think about your own role in educational leadership, the important discussions that need to be had in order for teachers to sustain their motivation and to be inspired to produce their best work possible day in and day out. Mm-hmm. Because as we said before, teaching is a really tough job, mm-hmm. you know, and it's one of the greatest jobs in the world. So as an educational leader, you know, we have to have important discussions with the people that we work with to bring out their best, mm-hmm. you know. So just think about that, and then when the clip's over, just talk about anything that resonates with you. So I'm going to play the clip now. Well, I think that's true. I think, you know, you need that great connectedness between people. But I'm also really struck, again, you know, the large number of companies I work with, and I'll say, you know, what's the driving goal here? And they'll say, $60 billion revenue next year. And I look at them and I say, you have got to be joking. What on earth 
life makes you think that everybody's really going to give it their all to hit a revenue target. You know, you have to talk to something much deeper inside people than that. You have to talk to people about something that makes a difference to them every day if you want them to bring their best and do their best and feel that you've given them the opportunity to do the best work they've ever done. Yeah, the reason why I play that audio clip with so many of my guests is that um, it really that audio clip itself forces you to really reflect and and think about what's important to you as a leader. Mm-hmm. And then as an extension, what's important to discuss with the people that we work with beyond content and pedagogy and mm-hmm. curriculum and all of these things. So um, what are your immediate kind of thoughts with that? Yeah, I think the, the equivalent in education to that, $60 billion revenue is the, the idea of um, needing to get kids through a certain uh, external test and they have, you know, 60% of the children must be at this level by the end of the year. Um, I would say that if you can come out and have students that love learning, that has, you can't do any better than that. And how do you create that atmosphere of, of the love of learning where kids will go home and still want to learn and they don't see any boundaries between the moment they walk out of the classroom and the moment they walk in the door as to, well, I'm still learning. And it's to make make students feel good about themselves. It's to make sure that students know that you care about them. Um, And I think if you can do that, then you have done the best job you possibly can. So don't worry about that end-of-year test. Worry about that kid who, who is detached from their learning and how can you bring them in to that idea that, you know what, it's really good fun. Actually, learning is great, and they want to involve themselves in their own learning. So if you've got kids who don't want to go to recess because they're so stuck into something that they don't want to walk out that door, um, then you're doing a good job. So create the love of learning, and you've won. Yeah, yeah that's good advice. And I think that we've got a... A common. I don't think. Have you ever met Sam Sherat? Um, no, but face, no, no, not face to face. No, yes. I'm, yeah, yeah. He's, he was in the same region as me. Yeah, very, yeah, very good. Thought provoker. Very good. Um, yeah. So Sam has this great talk. I had Sam. Uh, this is Sam and I are going to re-record a podcast because a few months ago um, it was right around when I recorded with Kath Murdoch. Sam and I had a great conversation about ninety minutes. Mm-hmm. and the sound quality was terrible, and there was no way to recover mm-hmm. the file. Like, it, it was unlistenable. Mm-hmm. So we, I tried to save the file, so we've been meaning to re-record, and we will re-record at some point. But um, Sam has this great talk that he gave last year at Learning 2.0 in Manila. Mm-hmm. I think I shared... Did I share it with you? Or if not, I will share it with you. Mm-hmm. But it's a six-minute like mini TED Talk. Mm-hmm. And it's all about that idea of um, school traditionally is about molds. We, we pump out molds. When they graduate, they're just mm-hmm. molds. Mm-hmm. The timetable is a mold. Yeah. Within each class, it's a mold. Mm-hmm. And he is a, 
a big advocate for breaking that mold mm -hmm. and getting rid of timetables. As you just said so succinctly, if you've got a kid really engaged in something when the recess bell goes, mm -hmm. let them keep going. Mm -hmm. You know, and of course there's logistics with teacher supervision and all these things. Yeah. But it's that idea of flow. Yeah. And yeah. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, a world-renowned uh, researcher in, into flow, yeah. has done loads and loads of studies into what produces states of flow. Mm -hmm. Whether you're a teacher or a student, it's the same thing, being lost in time. Yeah. How can we position ourselves and position students to be in that place and to find states of flow, which will require breaking the mold. So mm -hmm. if you look at Sam's talk, I'll, I'll share the link with you, but what are ways, yeah, we can't just get rid of the timetable, mm -hmm. but what's your advice to teachers who strive to break the mold at a micro level? Mm -hmm. well, um, for me, one of the, the most amazing times of the year is when we did the exhibition with, with the, the final year, the PYP, and there of in other in my last school we we collapsed timetables so the specialist subject teachers were um they they didn't take their classes at specific times but they had the um they had their classrooms open so if people were working on a, a, a an expression of their of their understandings through art they could come in and they could use the classroom and um, and that i think is almost exemplifies what education could be like you know someone said can't we have exhibition all year round and you, you think well yeah where is the time in in an ib pyp school where's you've got these wonderful units of work but when is the time when students can engage in their own inquiries with their own their own curiosity I mean, I was, I was reading a book in the holidays where I was, it was a, an historical novel, so it was fiction, but it was based on actual events. And then I found myself before very long on Wikipedia chasing this person who led to that person, who led to this person, who led to that person. Mm. And it was fascinating, like I say, flows when time just disappeared. Yeah. And time disappeared for me. And I was engaged through a, a, through a novel in understanding history. Yeah. And I think, yeah. Well, where's the chance will we give the students that opportunity? If they are so engaged in something, when is it say, okay to say, well, you know what, scrap this lesson, let's go down that road. Yeah, mm. and it's a very difficult thing to do because, it again, is. it's control, it's, it's all of these things, and if you remove that, you know, chaos will ensue. Yeah, right? yeah, it certainly is not free-for-all inquiries. Yeah. It, it's, it, you need to have, you need to have an outcome in mind. So yeah. that idea of the ski slope, you need to know where the finish line is. And whether they follow the red route or the black or the double diamond, you're going to yeah. get them there to the end. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't really matter how they get there. Yeah. We've got a teacher at our school who's wonderful. I'm going to have her on the podcast at some point to talk about her work. But um, our, our teacher, um, mm -hmm. I don't think there's any legalities with mentioning her name here, but no, um, so. Kristen, She's Kristen Anson. So yeah. she is uh, really captivated right now by, or actually not just right now, but over the last several months with mm. this idea of teaching for artistic behavior, yeah. mm. which is similar to a model in PE called teaching games for understanding, okay. right? yes. where yeah. you're, you're kind of layering 
That's a progression of layers mm -hmm. that you design, that the students go through. You, it allows for differentiation, it's, and it's preparing them at every progression to develop skills and concepts, mm. to be able to fully participate in the world of sport. Mm -hmm. Mm. Not always fully participate, but just to be confident in your ability to jump into a game of cricket or, mm -hmm. or football or basketball, whatever it is, because yeah. you, you've had this progression uh, and background. So it's that idea of you know, teaching for artistic behavior is all about setting up stations. And it's kind of that layering where you introduce them to portraits mm -hmm. and then you go to maybe paintings and then you go to different different um, areas of art mm -hmm. that will be developed. And once you open up all the stations, mm -hmm. so let's say there's six or eight or nine stations, it may take four or five months to open up all of those stations. Along the way, you're meeting all the outcomes required or you're, you're using the outcomes as guideposts to journey them through building their skills. But the idea is once they've all been opened, then it's free reign. So now the rest of the year, mm -hmm. and I, when I say free reign, it's not just run loose and wild, yeah. but everything is afterwards allows the kids to pursue any niche of the arts that really interests them. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a very innovative way mm. to run a program. Yeah. It takes a lot of courage. Mm -hmm. There'll be lots of failure. Um, and mistakes, but you continue to learn from it. Mm -hmm. But it's that idea. Kristen has truly broken the mold. Yeah, yeah. And, and she's doing it differently. Mm -hmm. Yet she's still going to meet uh, the outcomes mandated in her scope and sequence. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, I, I've had conversations with uh, Kristen last year about this because she was she was toying with it last year, and yeah. it is it is a. It, it's radical for a teacher because I think a visual arts teacher thinks, okay, I've, I've got to teach them about ceramics, for instance. They yeah. must know about pottery and how to join clay to clay. And, but it's not a series of discrete skills and hoping they come out with some understanding at the end of that because really there's very little understanding. They come out with just a, a skill in ceramics at the end of that. But for, for the teacher, they feel like they've done a good job. If they can produce 16 more or less identical thumb parts at the end of the lesson, they feel, oh, right, I've done a good job there. Don't have to worry because I taught them ceramics. Um, but to actually use ceramics as a form of expression, yeah. it doesn't touch it. Yeah. 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 So the actual understanding behind the, the media is, is not there. Yeah, and I think that's the big challenge for for an arts teacher. Yeah, is to is to move beyond very very narrow skills based learning, skill and drill, right? Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. the same with PE and music, yeah, right? Exactly. Yes. And yes. math, skill and drill, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Working from the textbook, but mm -hmm. so we're gonna transition over to the last part, and this is where I put my guest in the hot seat. Okay. All right. So. Um, I always conclude each podcast with a question. Um, for example, the last podcast, I, I had a uh, professor 
from a researcher from the U.S. on, and I asked her the greatest lesson that her parents ever taught her that's applicable to the work that she does. Mm -hmm. For you, I'm going to ask you to think about um, the end of your teaching career. Let's say you're 70 years old. Mm -hmm. You've had a long, uh, richly rewarding experience in education. You're looking back at your career. What would you be most proud of? I think even now, and I, I still have friends I taught with in the UK, and they were still connected with the school I first started teaching in. And uh, they said, oh, yeah, I was talking to one of your pupils who must be probably in her 30s by now, yeah. probably children of her own, but she still remembers you, and she remembers having great fun in your class. And she knew stuff when she, this is a grade, well, equivalent of our grade five, and I was teaching grade three at that time, the equivalent. And he said, she came to me and she, she knew stuff in grade five that I didn't expect. Mm -hmm. But also years later, she remembered the, the, the fun that she had in your classroom because she said you were, you were just good to talk to. And I remember the girl, actually. Yeah. She would come up with a friend almost every day at the beginning of the day and she would lean on my desk and we'd have a chat. Yeah. So not only did I have my outcomes, she actually knew stuff. She knew how to do stuff. She actually felt good about herself and she had a decent relationship with a teacher yeah. where I was not some distant figure. I was just someone that she, she had a good time learning with. Yeah. Fun was serious, but great fun. And I think if I, could, if I could come away with students who felt, yeah, you know what, I learned a lot, but I had a good time doing it, I feel like job well job. done, right? Yeah. yeah. I, uh, one of my favorite teachers, actually the best teacher I ever had, uh, I told this story once before on my podcast, but uh, his name was Mr. Millette. He was my grade 9 and 10 Canadian history teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, lovely man. And I remember uh, at the time, uh, it was a difficult time in my life. And I remember he was one of the teachers that I knew I could go to and, and speak with. And I had great respect for him in the classroom as well. And I enjoyed his class. And uh, I was 16 years old and I listened to the local radio station, CHYR 76.6. And, and uh, there was a Teacher of the Year award. Mm -hmm. And as I listened, the, the DJ was saying, so if you have a great teacher, write us a letter and tell, tell us about your teacher. So I'm 16 years old, and I'm like, I want to get in this contest. So I wrote this long, handwritten letter about why I think he should be Teacher of the Year, and I sent it in, and he won. Hmm. And he got this, this uh, certificate. Mr. Millette, I stayed in touch with him a little bit after high school, and then just carried on with my life. And I always thought about him, but never reached out to him again, and I... For years afterwards, I thought, oh, I hope he's okay, and how do I even get in touch with him now? But I, I still thought about him from time to time. So it was about seven years ago that my father died, and I flew back. We were in Cambodia at the time, and, and I flew back, and, and uh, I was at my, my father's funeral and um, ended up you know, being back in Canada for a week or two, then flew back to Cambodia. And then I got a Facebook message from uh, one of my former uh, classmates in high school who, said, who is, has been in touch with Mr. Millette for years mm -hmm. and said, you know, Mr. Millette was at your dad's funeral. Mm. And I was blown away. I was like, Mr. Millette, Dennis Millette. 
So it turns out that he drove two hours through a snowstorm. He saw it in the obituaries. So he drove to London, Ontario, which is like two hours from my hometown. He ended up at the wrong funeral. Hmm. So he, he realized he was at a, a, the wrong funeral and then ended up catching the tail end of my dad's funeral and didn't want to come up to me or say anything, just went and caught the, the tail end of my dad's funeral. And when I found that out, I called him up and I was like, I got his number from, from my class, uh, high school classmate and I called him up and we spoke for two hours on the phone and it was amazing catching up and, and he uh, mentioned that he still has a certificate of teacher of the year. <laughs> so I just emphasized with him and that was one of those moments where he just reached so many students. I was just mm. one of many students. Mm -hmm. But those memories that the teachers have with their students carry on, you know, and they remember it as much as the student. That's mm -hmm. why you say you still remember the yeah. girl because Beautiful. it meant as much to you as mm -hmm. it did to her, which means that it was an authentic mutual relationship where you're both benefiting, you yeah. know? Yeah. So I think that's one of the great things about teaching is the impact that we can have every single day on, on yeah. what we do. Yeah, and never forget that you are a huge influence on a person's life. Yeah. And so never talk down to them, never put them down, because they will that, that forms them. They are formed by the interactions they have with you. Yeah, it's a big responsibility. Yeah, definitely. So, John, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you, right. um, We're going to get this out soon. Um, I know you're not super active on Twitter, but people can find you on Twitter. Uh, yeah, they can if they hunt hard enough. I can't even remember my Twitter they, handle right now. I, I think you're Davidson John. You, you're backwards. Yeah, Davidson bit, John. Yeah. But I'll put it in the show notes. Um, and, um, yeah, thank you very mm -hmm. much. Um, so, everybody, thank you for listening to uh, this episode. And I hope you come back and listen to future episodes. Thanks for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassman. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.